Quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. So today we're coming to you directly from the International Monetary Fund, just days after China's announcement that researchers at their central bank, the People's Bank of China, are close to launching a new digital version of their currency. Now, experts around the world are suggesting that the move was driven at least in part by Facebook's announced cryptocurrency, Libra, and the potential competition it could create as a private international currency. But central bank digital currencies, which can include cryptocurrencies and digital assets, have been the topic of discussion for long before Libra, and the IMF has been at the forefront of advising governments considering their adoption. This is because central bank digital currencies could in some countries replace cash and in the process refine or even replace how monetary policy is conducted. So I wanted to get down to the bottom of it and to explore the issue with John Kiff and Sonia Davidovich, two key officials at the fund whose job it is to monitor these developments. John and Sonia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having us. I know that you've been really at the forefront of these developments here at the fund and have been very much involved in thinking through the the implications of central bank digital currencies for many governments around the world. So I guess we're going to start off with the really simple questions. You have three seconds to describe. Uh, John, what is a central bank digital currency? Go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and that's not a simple question. It it sounds like it should be simple, but um, the longer version of it, maybe we can take up a minute on this, is a digital representation of a country's fiat currency issued by a central bank. And I think another condition would be that it be the the legal tender of that country. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. And you'll hear other types of digital currency being described as central bank digital currency. Uh, For instance, uh, Senegal and Tunisia both claim that they were the first ever to issue a CBDC. So China, um, you know, they're stealing that, they've tried to steal that title from China, who hopes to be the first, but they, they they issued what they called CBDC a couple of years ago, but they're not issued by the central bank. Um, in, in the case of Senegal, it was issued by a commercial bank, um, and it was backed by fiat currency, and it was not legal tender. And in the case of Tunisia, um, it was actually issued um, by the post office, um, which in many countries, the post office serves as like a government a, agency. A, that's right. right. Yeah. So, that, you know, it's kind of close to a central bank digital currency, but it's not issued by a central bank, and that, that's the key thing. And of course, the most famous um, other alternative is, um, or or one, another self-described digital currency of the central bank variety would be um, the Marshall Islands. I mean, they've been in the news because they're planning to issue a cryptocurrency um, that is going to be not issued by a central bank, but by, by I think, the Treasury Department. Okay, so I'm just going to break this down. Yeah. So the, the key idea is that you have a currency that is legal tender being issued by a central bank and that this currency is a digital representation of, I guess, its old-school version of, of, of paper money. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, uh, as you've very interestingly observed, China is not the first, apparently, to have introduced some kind of digital representation of its paper money 
But what makes this interesting is that it is the first country to do so, or at least appears to be one of the first countries to do so, uh, with the backing of the central bank. So what's so important about the issuer being the central bank as opposed to, say, a commercial bank? So in this case, we are actually talking about the Benjamins in the strict sense of the word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Digital Benjamins. And I think the main, um, the main factor here is trust and credibility. So if I, as a central bank, issue money, there's presumably a high level of credibility because this currency is backed by me being the lender of last resort, the bank of all banks, if you will, issuing that currency as opposed to a commercial bank that can at any moment, uh, you know, go bust, have liquidity problems or other other sort of issues that might affect its credibility and trustworthiness. So what are the drivers behind a decision uh, for any particular central bank to go this route? Well, I think there's two major, major groups of central banks that are thinking about this. There's the, there's the advanced country central banks, and that would include um, Sweden, and China, uh, Canada is also actively looking into this. And in their case, I think the main motivator um, is, well, the, in geeky economist terms, we call it to monopoly distortions. And that, that really just means that what they're observing in their countries are private sector firms taking over the payment system. So in, in Sweden, for instance, um, the use of cash is, is down into something like 20% of transactions, I think. It's very, very, very small. And, and the other 80% is all on the, on, on, it's, it's actually a single platform, I think it's called Swish, um, that, that does all the other transactions. And so, it, again, we're getting back to this trust, trust thing that Sony was talking about, that you've got this private sector player, um, very concentrated payment system, privately run, um, and if they go bust, you, your, whole, your whole financial economy grinds to a halt. So that's the advanced country um, uh, rationale for, for developing countries, it's a little bit different. Um, for them, um, it, it boils down to saving, saving money. Um, the, often the, the printing of bills and distributing um, paper money um, is, is very, very expensive. And, and also there's financial inclusion aspects because um, there's not, perhaps the population's too dispersed to, to, to have ATMs and, and bricks and mortar banks um, where, where they live. So you want, you, but yet they often have pretty good um, digital infrastructure like broadband or, 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 or data coverage. Um, and so that, that, that would be the major motivator on that side. No, I think uh, you raised uh, the most important points, but there are also like other consideration like wanting to prevent financial crimes because obviously when you have a digital representation of your fiat currency, it's much easier for you as a central bank to track it and to monitor how it's being used in the economy as opposed to cash that is like anonymous, if you will. So that is one other motivation. But I think the most powerful rationale for CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, I should explain because uh, we love acronyms, <laughs> is the financial inclusion piece. Because as you can imagine, there's a lot of remote areas, as John mentioned, it's, it's not only costly to transport cash, but it's also not safe, right? You have like pirates, like pirates of the Caribbean, yeah, they will intercept <laughs> a boat that is carrying cash to the remote islands. And that money is then gone. There's nobody who's going to be able to uh, back you up or be a backstop for you recovering those funds. It's just simply gone, right? I, have, I worked on Samoa and Tuvalu. And what is really striking there is that 
you will you will have everyone with a cell phone, as John mentioned. Like there is coverage, mobile coverage, and uh, internet connectivity. So there's a tremendous opportunity there for the central bank to step in and say, like, okay, let's look into providing uh, another form of our currency to these people, right? Because for banks, it's simply a lot of times not profitable to open up another branch in this remote island in the jungle somewhere, or you know, there it's it might be too risky for whatever reason. So. I just want to jump in Good the rationale. Pirates of the Caribbean as an interesting um, <laughs> analogy because the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank could actually um, jump in front of China. They're, they've, they've, they've got a, um, a well-laid-out plan to issue digital currency, um, and they'll be probably doing a pilot very shortly. That's really interesting. And, and, and what you seem to be pointing out is with these two different worlds, uh, you could end up with two different products. And are, are there signs that there is some divergence in terms of how uh, central bank digital currencies are being constructed um, in different countries for relevant uh, populations. Well, speaking of countries, I keep a, a master list of all the countries that are seriously considering issuing CBDC. Right now, it's 50 countries. 50, which, five zero. Five zero, mm-hmm. of which about 40 um, you know, are, are very actively looking. Ten of them have looked at it, and it's in a kind of an academic exercise, and they've decided to put it on hold and watch what the other guys are doing. And, and some of them are in very much stealth mode, so we don't really know what the design looks like, but many of them are openly discussing the options, and, and they're all over the place, really. There, there's some that are looking at cryptocurrency-based um, digital currencies. Some are looking at what we call account-based ones, which would be work kind of like a debit card works mm-hmm. now, um, where you'd have an account. We often say account with the central bank. That's an unlikely scenario, because not too many central banks want to get into the business of servicing thousands of customers. They, they would probably outsource that to some other kind of financial institution, a bank or whatever that would, um, and that's, for instance, the model that's being used in the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. And also, I think that's the Chinese model too. They call it a two-tiered system. Where, where again, they're, you said they're outsourcing as yeah. opposed to having, say, my own personal account with the Fed or with the PBOC that they would create some kind of institution where people would have the account, but it would be backed by or, or facilitated by central bank, PBOC infrastructure. Yeah, and also in, in terms of the technology required, some, some most seem to count on there being um, data coverage. They have smartphones that are data, but that's an expensive piece of hardware for many. And so um, Uruguay, for instance, they've actually done a pilot. So arguably they're the first out of the box. They've done, they've done a six month pilot of a CBDC and theirs was based. The list on, is getting longer, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but they, theirs base is based on feature phone technology. So you don't need to have data. You just need to have um, the, the 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 text messaging um, service available. Interesting. Yeah. And that is, I have to, I have to reiterate, that is really powerful because solutions that only depend on um, having a smartphone are are just not really a viable option for a lot of countries or populations in the developing world that just don't have access to that technology. They will have a feature phone, though. Like, we see a high penetration of so-called feature phones, if you remember from the late 90s, early 2000s, the flip phone. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sure we Good all days. have one in our drawer. <laughs> <Email>, Scotty. <laughs> 
So that's really the only way how to reach some of these uh, populations, right? And there has been talks about trade-offs and risks when you do want to go the route of, of introducing a central bank digital currency. How would one classify the, the, the universe of, of risks or challenges associated with uh, central bank digital currencies? Oh boy, I think we should have another podcast on this. <laughs> yeah. I'll find the music for it. Yeah. I, I guarantee you, I'll find it. Yes, get that playlist going. Um, I will start off, and maybe John can like then uh, add on because there's really a long list of things to consider. I mean, some of them are really um, can be legitimately classified as risks. Others are like considerations that need to be taken into in account to avoid or preempt risks from happening later down the road, right? So I think it's important to keep that in mind because if we were just to talk about risk, like the most obvious one is cybersecurity risk, right? Like there's no technology that can be foolproof or safe uh, from hackers or malicious attacks. So that I think is what one of the main considerations or, or fears of like policy decision makers. Will, will they be able to build something that is robust enough, safe enough, so that people have full and complete trust in it, right? The other, um, the other risk potentially are risk to the financial financial stability, right? Like if the central bank plays a more prominent role in issuing and distributing uh, that digital currency, and on top of that enters the payment system realm, then it's potentially acting as a competitor to incumbent banks, financial institutions, or other financial service providers, which in some instances can be can be risky, but it you know, I could just like aggravate things that are already um, like not working that well in terms of like the what we call the transmission channel. We had a, a very uh, similar conversation in the United States with this real-time payment system where the Fed is is basically announcing an upgrade to how it is going to help to facilitate instantaneous payments in the United States, and some of the banks were concerned uh, that it could end up becoming competitor to their own financial services uh, because they wanted to build up their own uh, real-time uh, payment infrastructure here in the United States. Uh, when a central bank does get involved, um, does it is it necessarily a market actor if it does introduce a, a central bank digital currency? Does that mean, by definition, if this is something you're going to release into your domestic country or population or into your economy, that as a central bank, you are by default playing a kind of a market role that has been traditionally been assumed by some private actors? Well, it can be. It depends. All depends on the operating model the central bank chooses, right? There's, I mean, from our sort of vantage point, it's like three main operating models, and there's variations within those models. But the central bank can just be in charge of issuing the central bank digital currency and leave the distribution and the payment system uh, piece to banks or other fi financial service providers. So they don't necessarily need to compete um, with other market actors. But if they choose to own the entire process, all the way from issuance all the way to payment systems, they might be in a situation where they're actually competing with um, other financial service providers. Another interesting wrinkle, though, this, is, this relates to a, a paper that we published um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's kind of fresh off the press. And, and it was a think piece on, on um, e-money in general. And in, in that paper, we introduced the idea of a synthetic CBDC, which is um, that really deals very directly with the 
the issue of competing with the incumbents. So what a synthetic CBDC is is basically well, maybe I'll step back a bit. You you mentioned early Libra, and and Libra kind of belongs to this class of 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 tokens they call stable coins, right? And then it's a, a stable coin is a crypto asset or cryptocurrency that's backed one to one by some either a basket or a single fiat currency. Um, but the way that usually works, it works like Libra does. It, a, a private company um, will do the trade. They, you give them cash, and then they take that cash, they invest it um, in, in some very risk-free securities. Not risk-free, but real risk deposits with Which is what banks. Facebook was proposing to do. Exactly. And then they give you kind of a token or some kind of representation of that. And, and, and But you have a, a lot of counterparty risk with that kind of coin. So um, we've proposed the idea of a synthetic CBDC, where, in fact, the um, the issuer of the token can, instead of in, um, investing in securities and deposits, can deposit directly with the central bank. Um, and in, and the, so the quid pro quo for that is that the central bank will also uh, apply some kind of conditions, maybe even supervision, to make sure that everything's being managed properly. And ideally, also um, protects that uh, protects the, the, those secure that those investments. Um, from bankruptcy of the issuer, because let's say you you buy a token from Facebook or Libra, let's say, and Libra goes kaput. Um, there's some risk that um, all, all those deposits will be tied up in some kind of bankruptcy proceeding. There, there. Whereas if you, we would propose that they be put basically in a sort of special purpose vehicle bankruptcy remote vehicle, so that there these tokens are really absolutely secure to the. Owner. So that's interesting. So even if you're a central bank, you're you're basically saying, look, you know, not all central banks are presumably um, going to be in the same kind of financial situation, and uh, they're not uh, uh, all going to be necessarily able to withstand different kinds of exogenous shocks to their economy, and so therefore there are potentially best practices in terms of how you structure uh, that central bank digital currency so as to minimize the risks. That a central bank could face, because if, if the central bank, I'm, I'm assuming, is is becoming such a dominant actor or an important actor, uh, uh, it could introduce new kinds of risks. And if things go poorly, uh, if your central bank goes down, then your entire economy yeah. goes down. And if you're big enough, then who knows what else goes down? And so it, it would have to be done really, really carefully. Are there other kinds of risks as well, whether or not it be privacy risks or whether or not they be risks for money laundering? Um, uh, really the same kinds of risks that, that uh, people tend to associate with uh, private issuers of some stable coins and some cryptocurrencies and, and, and the like. Uh, how relevant are these questions when we get into the world of central bank digital currencies? Well, they're super, super relevant, and the, and we spent a lot of time thinking about that. In the we we published a paper back in November um, where we we looked at the kind of trade-offs in the design of, of of a central bank digital currency that have to be considered, and and the anonymity privacy dimension is an important one. It intertwines with financial integrity too, and there's different ways to cut that um, according to the design. Um, for instance, the in Uruguay they they opted for what they call um, a model where um, the transactions are anonymous but traceable. So, um, because they could have made it so that it's like a de debit card where they see everything, um, right. but they they can't. Um, they they can see the flows. They can see the the flows where they come go to and from. But that's all. That information's anonymized. They have another. I think way to think about it is another ledger with the 
with those nodes identified and with all the information about who's on those nodes, but they can't see that. But um, if, if and while they're tracing those flows and they see something kind of funky, um, they can get a court order to to link those up and then and then find out more about what's going on in in there. Um, I think in the case of Sweden, I think they're I mean they're they're looking they're, all possibilities are on the table for them, and I think they're looking at um, one that, m that might involve. Um, basically two different cryptocurrencies operating in parallel. One would be one where um, it'd be more like the Uruguay one, something that's, um, that's, um, that's anonymous but, but traceable. And then they would have another one for very small transactions um, that would be uh, anonymous. And in, and in some ways it can be important to have that option because what happens if your communication infrastructure goes down or power goes down um, and, and, you, and everyone's now become reliant on, the, on your new digital currency? Um, you do need a backup plan. So there, I mean, different things come to mind, like some kind of um, card uh, that uh, that holds um, digital currency on it, and it's and you lose that card, tough. You know, no one's going to build because that's the other. It's like a private key. That's the other trade-off. In fact, that um, there's there's a good side to having um, traceability and maybe less anonymity because. Um, what happens when you lose your card? And that's and that's really interesting as well because you're also talking about well, what's the consumer risk? Like if you lose your your card, just like mm -hmm. the analog being, if you lose your private keys in cryptocurrency world, and and then there are the, even the national security questions, right? Given this range of issues, I mean, we're talking about financial stability, we're talking about protecting the central bank itself, um, structuring the central bank digital currency. Uh, 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 <laughs> literally ensuring that people can uh, keep and hold their central bank digital currency. After all, that's definition of money is, is an instrument for, for savings. Uh, how quickly do you think we'll see wide-scale adoption of central bank digital currencies? And even more specifically, do, do you foresee perhaps different parts of the world moving faster than other parts of the world when it comes to adopting um, these central bank digital currencies? I personally don't think there will be a wide-scale adoption like in, in the near term. I think central banks are mainly now starting to explore, run pilots, and maybe like experiment in like within innovation hubs or regulatory sandbox and just see how um, how these different products, including a central bank digital currency, can inform their regulation. Because in a lot of instances, it requires change of um, leg the legislative and regulatory framework, right? Like in some instances, the Central Bank Act needs to be amended. I mean, not, not always, right? In some acts, you will have enough flexibility uh, to issue a central bank digital currency, but not for all countries, right? But I have to say what is good about projects like Libra is that they gave an impetus to central banks to actually start thinking about it and exploring a little at a faster pace than than maybe they would have done like had that not happened. I think it certainly focused the minds of more, <laughs> more than a couple of central bankers when they when they yes. saw the pros the the prospect of uh, of, of of an international uh, 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 private uh, currency. But but there's other options like uh, just building up their own. Um, payment system infrastructure, just like the U.S. right now. I mean, the U.S. has a very backward um, payment system. Uh, uh, payment I, system I, I, I figured that when you use the word backward, I, yeah. I, I had the sense as to where this could be. Well, going. I know where. I mean, I come from Canada, <laughs> so I come from a country where it's really slick and money changes 
um, changes hands really fast right. into a country where I expected things to be much faster. But you know, I, sometimes I'll make a payment and it doesn't show up um, in the other account for two or three days. So um, that means that that's why the Fed is pushing ahead with its its uh, its new. Uh, new proposal to have a fast payment system. So for many, a fast payment system solves a lot. Europe's taken that approach. Their, yeah. their uh, TIPS system um, is is a pretty big competitor to CBDC. And then in fact, um, uh, Europe is, has looked at CBDC and kind of said, well, we don't really need to look at that right now because we've got our TIPS system. We'll see how that yeah, goes. I- well, well, thank you so much, and I think I think uh, that that's it's a great observation that ultimately all the different countries are trying to see well where are they, and how can they remain relevant while uh, minimizing the risk to I suppose their their uh, consumers, but also their their economies. And it'll be really interesting to see how all of this plays out. Thank you to you both for allowing us here uh, into the IMF, and uh, we really look forward to maybe. Uh, visiting you guys again maybe in a year or two to see um, how these developments are playing out and to get your assessment. Well, it's clear that different countries are moving towards central bank digital currencies for different purposes at different speeds and will likely develop very different solutions. It's going to be very interesting keeping track of the changes to come. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.